Just give me one minute while I pour a beverage and then I'll be back. Of course, it's a Scots minute to make a tea. That is unexpected. Are you sitting next to the dishwasher? Yeah, I, I am fully domesticated, you know. On the islands. <laughs> I'm in Ireland, yeah, on the west coast. Fellow Celt, good. My wife gave me the most accurate description of it I've ever heard. She said to me, so it's basically you three guys and a guest talking for a while and ending with loads of puns. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> That's going to end up on the cutting room floor. I don't know. Yeah, and I was really surprised that I'm doing the introduction in the first place. I was like, what? All right. Hello, you are listening to Troublesome Terps, the interpreting podcast where no topic is too risky, no discussion is too scary, and almost no pun is too groan-worthy. Now, I'm Alexander Gansmeyer, and with me here in our virtual studio, we have our usual motley crew of multilingual maestros. First up, he's responsible for at least a third of the puns and a good number of the long stories. It's our resident non-medical doctor, Jonathan Downey. How are you, Jonathan? I'm doing very, very well. It doesn't seem that long since we recorded the last time. These, the time just flies in. It does. Time flies when you're having fun. Yeah. So every recording session is like five minutes. The last time we did a podcast recording, the UK actually had a stable government. <laughs> it was not that long ago, Jonathan. <laughs> I'm I'm totally cutting this out. It's not staying in. What is funny? Oh, oh my goodness. All right. And of course, you already heard him. We also have with us the most popular interpreting podcaster in Skeek, Alexander Drexel. Hi, Alex. Hi, everyone. It's oddly specific, but works for me. Well, you do know that we have the world's most popular uh, interpreting podcast, as Jonathan and I have discussed at length. <laughs> yeah, at, at least it's the most popular interpreting podcast in what was it, Angola? In I think. <laughs> so, so to all of our Angolan and Zimbabwean fans, thank you. Shout out to you guys, thank you. We wouldn't be here without you. Either which way, on today's show, uh, we're revisiting a really tasty topic, and many people are aware, of course, that the majority of interpreters are female. Today, to help us revisit gender and interpreting, we have Sarah Hickey. Sarah. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you on. And I should probably uh, say a little bit about the backstory of how this came about, because I first met Sarah in Galway, and she's uh, actually joining us from Galway today. Uh, and if you don't know, Galway has a university that trains conference interpreters. And uh, correct me, Sarah, if I'm wrong, but it's the only un university that trains conference interpreters for Irish. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yes. So um, that's the National University of Galway. And uh, I had the pleasure of going there a couple of times to provide uh, what we call pedagogical assistance. Not that they need it, but sometimes it's nice to get, get a different face saying the same things that the trainers always say. And then sometimes it has a different impact and sometimes it doesn't, I guess. So, um, yeah, so that's where that's where I met um, Sarah. And um, before we 
get into the tasty topic, as we said, why don't you tell us just a little bit about your uh, background, Sarah? Because uh, you told us that you didn't start out your career as an interpreter. You did something else before, didn't you? Yes, I actually started as a radio reporter in Germany. So I'm from Germany and I started just working for the local radio station. Um, I wanted to be a journalist and did an internship and then continued as a freelancer for years until I moved to Ireland, actually. And can you tell us which radio station you worked for or is that something you'd rather keep private? <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> it's, uh, Uh, from my hometown in Oberhausen. So it was Radio Oberhausen and Radio Mülheim. They were, or they still are one team and they do two radio uh, stations. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how you made the switch then from journalism, but uh, to interpreting one, I think it, it works quite well because um, at least, uh, unless you're like a specialized journalist for economics, you have to cover all kinds of topics. I mean, just the way interpreters do. So I suppose it's uh, it's almost a natural fit or not a big Not a big change, maybe? Yeah, it definitely worked really well um, because obviously for interpreting, you need to constantly uh, dig into new topics and know how to do research um, efficiently. And in journalism, mm. you really need to do the same and really quickly as well. I remember we had um, two deadlines a day, um, so you really wow. <laughs> needed to work quickly. <laughs> yeah. That's funny because when I was at high school, my career choices were between being a journalist, an interpreter, and a minister. So um, I, I did my work experience with a journalist, and they just got me to do all of their filing. Oh. And me and admin just don't get on. So that, that, that turned me off journalism forever, sadly. Well, in radio, we were basically being told, look, if you don't deliver anything, there'll be nothing on the radio. So... That was, that was that. <laughs> nice. That's not That's good. That's pretty fun. Plus, you can just make stuff up. Sorry, did I say that out loud? <laughs> no, but definitely um, there were days where I did not have the time to go to the bathroom or eat lunch, let's just say. <laughs> yeah, that kind of But happen. you get quicker at it, you know, and you learn a lot. So no regrets. Hmm. Um, so you said no, no regrets, but um, why did you decide to move into interpreting? Or, I mean, how did, how did that happen? A uh, bit of a longer road, I guess. Um, I moved to Ireland uh, for a man, yeah, my husband. Um, and then I uh, had to just rethink my career. Um, started working in customer service because I couldn't find anything else. Uh, I learned a lot there actually as well. Then um, just wanted to go back to working with languages in one way or another. So I started with translation and then eventually discovered the course here in Galway. Um, I guess I never thought I'd be good enough, but wanted to give it a shot. And then it worked out really, really well, <laughs> which was great. Um, I think somewhere in the back of my head, I always had what my grandmother told me when I was a little kid. Um, she wanted to be an interpreter, but she never got the chance because, you know, it was the 50s and she was a woman. So it was a bit of a different story. But she always told me how amazing interpreters are. So I feel like that influenced me. But that's interesting that she wouldn't know about that because it's not necessarily a, uh, a profession that is very well known, I guess. I mean, if, at least in the specific sense of interpreting, translation is maybe different. I don't know. Well, I think um, on the one hand, she was very talented when it came to languages. Uh, for the times back then, she spoke um, French, Spanish and English quite well. And uh, I mean, she suffered from Alzheimer later, but even then she could still speak some English, which was quite cool. Um, 
That's fascinating. Yeah. And yeah, I guess in the 50s, that was the time when interpreters were really on a platform as well. Yeah. So I presume they would have been maybe on the news a bit more as well. Yeah, you would probably see them move around with politicians or uh, whispering into their ear. Yeah. Exactly. And also, I think I've been doing some research for the, the book that I'm writing in the late 40s into the 50s is when conference interpreting starts becoming a thing. Um, you know, 1919 was the first time it ever happened, but it really, it, the profile got raised in that point. And as they're rebuilding post-war, um, I think interpreters played such an important role in that, that it's probably a prime time to, to see interpreters at work before we all became invisible. Yeah, exactly. So I can only assume that in that time when she was like in her 20s then, she must have, you know, caught that, I would say. Tell us a little bit more about, um, I guess, yeah, the university at, at Galway. I mean, um, what what is it? Is it like, is it a big university is, um, or what's um, what's the status of interpreting, I guess, at the university? That, that would be interesting to me. Well, looking at the building that we're in, I feel like the status is not um, the highest. But then again, when you go into the building and you go into the room where we work, um, we have all the state-of-the-art technology and amazing teachers. So from that point of view, um, I think we're, we're not missing anything and we're way up there. Um, the university is, um, well, from my point of view, not very big, but I also studied in Bochum in Germany and that <laughs> that university is huge. It's like it's a little city. It uh, actually has almost the same population as Galway, that university. Wow. <laughs> it's a bit of a different story, but um, I love NUI Galway. It's such a beautiful campus and they have so many um, cool projects happening all the time and events that you can join as a student. It's a really nice community and I did my Erasmus there and, you know, I, I came back. That's a good sign. Oh, <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, but but I can confirm this. There's quite a contrast between, um, well, because because the, the main building on the campus is like like an old university building that you would expect in in the uk or an island and then uh, the interpreting suite is in this little prefab building that's kind of <laughs> falling apart but they don't they don't make the spare parts for this anymore so you can't really fix anything it's kind of tricky but um yeah it's much better on the inside than it is on the outside <laughs> yeah it's just it gets quite warm in the summer that's a bit of a problem yes and cold in the winter so it's perfect <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> Ireland and summer are not things that I normally associate together. You know, as a, as a fellow Celt, the, there's a saying that in Scotland, that it's the only country in the world where people are admitted to hospital with frostbite and sunburn at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's quite that bad. Though. As soon as the temperature gets into double figures Celsius, the men start taking their t-shirts off. So I don't know if it's the same in Galway. Yeah, it sounds familiar, definitely. <laughs> but we had a lovely summer last year, but I presume everyone had. It was a crazy yeah. hot summer. Yeah, I think everyone did. Yeah. But um, just to finish um, talking about Galway, um, you, you, because you don't have Irish, so obviously they, they provide other language combinations as well, right? Yeah. So from what I know, um, the course started with just Irish out in Connemara, which is the Irish-speaking region out here. And then uh, later on, more, more languages were added and it got moved to the campus um, at NUI. So now we have, uh, so in my year, we had German, Spanish, French, and Italian as well. That's really big. That's a lot of languages. Yeah, there were um, 16 in our class, and, but I think usually it's only 12. So our class was a little bit bigger. 
um, and for German, in one course, there were only two of us and in the other direction, there were three of us, um, which I loved though, because we got so much more feedback from our teachers. We got so much more out of our money, let's say. <laughs> more bang for your buck. Yeah, it was fantastic. So you did the BA um, in German and English at Bochum University? Yes. And um, I don't know how that works these days, but do you have do you have some kind of research work, um, like a paper at the end of the BA as well? Yes. Um, I did a study on audience-directed speech in children. So <laughs> I really got into linguistics. When I started my studies, I thought I was going to hate linguistics. It sounded really boring. And then I got into it and finished all my exams in linguistics and did my thesis in linguistics and I still love it. So, um, yeah, basically, you know, the way we talk, we, we change the way we talk depending on who we're talking to, you know, if it's a child or an adult, a doctor or a um, soccer player. And I just wanted to... <laughs> that was a very specific example. example. <laughs> so, um, but... I just wanted to see how early this starts in children. So I actually did my research over here in Ireland as well with the uh, sisters of a friend. Uh, the one had only just started speaking, the other or was really small, and the other was like um, maybe five or a little younger. I can't quite remember. But basically I wanted to see if this five-year-old already changed the way she spoke when she spoke to us um, adults or to her little sister. And she actually did use baby talk, um, talking to her even smaller sister, and tried to adapt more to our way of speaking as adults when she spoke to us. So it was only a 20-page paper, but I did a tiny bit of a research project. I didn't really need to, but I've always liked um, doing my own research. Uh, look at Jonathan. You just made him very happy. <laughs> It's just fun. <laughs> I, I was just thinking we have four kids. You can definitely tell who they're speaking to by what they say. Um, so, and, and this is the interesting thing is like, you know, you become, you get people training in linguistics and all they really want to do is play with other people's kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I heard that linguists make, make the worst parents because they just observe their children. Well, the, the, the <laughs> other one is, is that there's a, there's a running joke that people go into sociolinguistics just so that they can do research in pubs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I did do some of that in the pub actually. <laughs> Audience directed speech in a pub. And there are a couple of nice pubs in Galway. So oh, loads! Yeah, it's yeah. it's Ireland. It's the only <laughs> usually pubs are named after towns, and Ireland towns are named after pubs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like that. Um, so be, before we dive into the actual topic of your master's thesis, then um, we should probably point out that um, I think yeah we've covered this topic before in a double episode actually with Camille Collar. Uh, Was it last year or even two years ago already? I, I'm not quite sure. I think I it feels like it's been a while. I think it was last year. Was it last year? Okay. I believe so. Anyway, it's been one of the former episodes. Um, and I think in that episode, we mentioned the research from another Galway student, which was Rachel Ryan. Yep. Yeah. So did, did you sort of build on her research or what, what was, yeah. in, how was her research different? Or maybe you can uh, go into that a little bit. We're basically um, looking at the same topic just from uh, she asked men and I asked women so um, oh. when we were asked to choose a topic for our thesis um, you know brainstormed a little bit and I was kind of bummed to find that someone had already done the topic I was most interested in but then I read it um, read her thesis which was amazing um, and then realized okay well she only 
analyze the male side because, of course, our theses are also a little bit limited. And so I saw an opportunity and wanted to ask uh, women how they feel about it, especially since they're there is a majority of women now. I figured they should, you know, get a chance to express their Yeah, yeah the that matter. makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. So in, in Rachel's case, that was kind of a conscious decision to sort of limit the, the group of people she was talking to. Yeah. Or the, or that, yeah. I guess her uh, aim was because it used to be male-dominated um, that she wanted to see why men today choose to go in such a feminized profes- profession, what uh, motivates them and why they think this happened this um gender imbalance that we have now mm-hmm. do you remember what the the main motivation was for for men men yeah yeah um there was a tedium in previous oc- occupations so lots of men were just bored <laughs> before and wanted something more stimulating um okay. then it was meaningfulness mm. uh, and remuneration the, the pay is quite good i guess um, the flexible element of the profession and that um, some find it uh, that uh, prestigious, sorry, that is still a prestigious mm-hmm. profession. Yeah. Okay. This is the, uh, this is on the AIG web zine, isn't it? It is, yeah. Ah, because I was like, I've read this before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we, we read the summary back when we prepared the episode. Yeah, 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 it rings a bell. I will actually mm-hmm. soon write the follow-up for the AIG webzine as well. For, uh, Very cool. Yeah. You heard it here first, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should send us the link so we can put it, in the, put it in the show notes then. Oh, yeah, totally. Well, I'm going to write it for May, but after that, yeah, definitely. And and so I mean th- this is interesting because the the way that she was talking about it there the kind of flexibility and meaningfulness I'm pretty sure that other studies of of work have actually said that those are typically associated with things that women look for in a job so for men to say that that's already an interesting move because traditionally you get a lot of research on men saying, you know, we want career advancement and tons of cash and adoring fans and seniority. <laughs> and, you know, apart from the adoring fans, I, I don't see how much of that applies to interpreting. Well, actually, this comes up a little bit uh, as well, um, that at least in the study that I did, uh, women have said that they feel like men are usually looking for more of a stable career and a career where they can be visible and, you know, like the center of attention, let's say. I don't (laughs) don't know if that's true. (laughs) 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 So, um, Mm. yeah, I agree that that is, um, it seems to be the consensus, but maybe for the few men that go into this profession, this is attractive. Hmm. I don't know. How the, do you guys feel about it? <laughs> is, is this the moment where you sort of self-examine? <laughs> Maybe. Can, can, can we just make this clear? We're a group of male podcasters who get two and a half yeah, thousand exactly. people to listen to us an episode. And most and all three of us like to speak in public. Okay, I think we better admit defeat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so what when when you looked at women, you were saying you kind of did the kind of female side of her study. Did you see similar women talking about similar aspects in your study? Or did they come up with something completely different? Not really, because um, what I found interesting is that um, men and women seem to be motivated by similar aspects when it comes to this profession, but had different views on why the feminization happened. 
So women were also um, motivated by the stimulation of the job, for example. Yeah, that's just um, thrilling and gives you a bit of an adrenaline rush and that there's continuous learning, um, that it's meaningful because you're helping other people and that it's an important job and therefore also um, has a certain prestige in that sense, even though they didn't fully call it prestigious, but just that there is some prestige in the meaningfulness of the profession. It was all about women wanting to use language as a tangible skill as well. Yeah. So this was something that the men had mentioned before, that women apparently have uh, superior ability when it comes to languages. And women, by the way, don't agree with that. Um, they think that's a gender stereotype, but they okay. express oh, yeah. a passion for languages and that they wanted to use them actively rather than just, you know, be pushed towards teaching, for example, or other um, jobs that they would find more stagnant, like translation as well. Right, right. Oh, <laughs> this might be controversial. Well, I'm a translator yeah. as well, um, but, um, and I like translation, but I love interpreting. I, I'm just waiting for 150 perfectly lit written letters of complaint from translators to hit our email address. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then what we do is we really annoy them by like having an argument with them on the Oxford comma. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> just real quick um did, did, sorry because you mentioned this um that women complained that, that this was a stereotype that women are better at languages so did, did you happen to look at, at whether there's any research that would have confirmed this yeah and to be honest um most of the research that i found and all the studies i reviewed um it all in the end came down to more gender stereotyping um but what i found interesting is that it's more um the issue seems to be A, in society, and B, in uh, education, which is, of course, related. Because if you keep telling girls from an early age, oh, you're really good at languages, but you're bad at math, mm. yeah? And right. then they all go into that direction. Um, of course, if you take language classes in school and then you study languages, then, of course, you're also more inclined to go into a conference interpreting than someone that might just have been pushed towards biology all his life. So I, I guess my my teachers must have done something wrong because I was the only uh, guy in a, <laughs> a class for because we had this sort of language specialization at the school that I went to, and we had only one class that took the language specialization. Everybody else was in science. So yeah. So anyway. But I I think as well I know there's limited neurological research on kind of sex differences in the brain, and there's some slight evidence I remember reading that um, women tend to be better at kind of the bilateral interhemispheric stuff but I mean even still it's with brain plasticity it could easily just be that someone's learned that I mean I was reading today about what how sugar changes the chemistry of your brain and thinking is there anything that we can't change in our brains you know it's gonna be let's just yeah. everything. and what I found in interesting in some of the studies I reviewed about um you know uh, occupations and gender associated with that is that it's actually a lot more fluid than we think there have been loads of professions that have changed their gender over time. And then every time people would start to associate certain attributes that come with that gender with that job. Um, just to give you an example, I'd written some down as well. Um, so I don't know if you knew this, but secretary and flight attendant used to be, you know, that used to be male jobs. Nowadays, typical female jobs. I did not know that. <laughs> then uh, book editing used to be both attractive to men and women. Basically, until big conglomerates came in and offered 
better jobs to men. So, and they took some of the autonomy away as well. So then men had the opportunity to progress, but women did not. For them, book editing remained an attractive profession. And so book editing became feminized. Um, huh. Or, is- yeah, I thought so too. Or I may know this from one or two movies, but uh, did you know that computer programming uh, was done by women initially? Yeah, mostly. It was uh, yeah dominated by women, I think, in the beginning. Yeah, and it basically only changed once the importance of the computer rose, and then suddenly it was associated with masculinity and rationality, and now it's a male-dominated field. Does anyone know why interpreting feminized? Because certainly my impression is that, you know, the kind of International Labour Organization interpreters and certainly the early Nuremberg interpreters were male-dominated because they basically recruited from, I guess, diplomatic course and now we've gone to feminization when did that happen and does anyone know why <laughs> but there were quite a few women among the nuremberg crowd at least no actually so, um no? out of 32 i think that were profiled there were only six women uh, that was part oh, of my thesis as well it was basically part of both what uh, rachel ryan and i did was to look like why did the shift occur and it's not like there is a clear answer <laughs> just to state that up front but um so people just there are the few hypothesized reasons and one is also the introduction of simultaneous interpreting and hmm. let's just say with a lot of this fairly negative gender stereotypes come into play. And that is that, but there is enough evidence out there, to be honest. And for women, it pains me to say say this, but whenever a profession becomes feminized, um, usually that means lower prestige, lower wages, um, work being viewed as unskilled or flexible employment. But it can also go the other way around. Yeah. So when a job loses prestige, uh, then it can open the door for more women to come in. And one hypothesis is that when simultaneous started and, you know, interpreters were no longer standing next to the podium with politicians and more like the star of the show, because back then they were obviously real celebrities. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely, this is one true though, yeah. um, a theory that I don't find too stupid, to be honest. Um, oh, my God. That basically when the interpreter became a bit more invisible in the booth, that that took away from the prestige and allowed for more women to come in. Sorry, I'm rejoicing here because invisibility is like my research thing. Well, one of my research things. Um, And I I would say that those problems, I'm trying to work out just doing the research for my second book. Have I mentioned that already? Um, (laughs) About about this whole invisibility thing, because um, certainly we've got enough historical research that the invisible interpreter is pretty new. I mean, you're talking post post forties, fifties, maximum. Um, anything pre pre that, you have visible interpreting. You have the interpreter as diplomat. You have the interpreter as, um, you know, you go back thousands of years. You have the interpreter as builder of community. And so, I I could actually see a good argument for interpreting becomes invisible. You've got 40s, 50s women who were in the munitions factories, the men coming back from work. Yeah, I could I could I, I could follow that that argument on a purely sociological political basis. <laughs> which then opens up the door to is the invisibility norm damaging interpreting? Now I have very strong views on that, but it's it it's a related question. Yeah, and um, the the thing is, like as with any um, 
profession that becomes feminized. Um, unfortunately, research shows that uh, prestige jobs and wages and working conditions as well. And if we look at the recent trends in interpreting as well, and for example, the, the protests at the parliament as well last year um, over working conditions, um, a bunch of research in the interpreting industry has pointed at this development, working conditions going down, um, the profession increasingly being viewed as a service profession and services associated with women as well. Um, more ACI days, um, for example. <laughs> so that's more flexible employment that's again associated with women. And this is not to, by the way, um, supposed to sound like I'm blaming women. I'm just trying to point out that in a number of professions, you can observe similar trends. Yeah? Um, and it seems that some of it um, matches what is happening or happened in inter interpreting as well. That, that kind of opens up a whole Pandora's box of... Uh, I mean, one of the questions that's lingering for me now is, is the feminization of interpreting linked to changes in how interpreting is viewed and which then creates changes in working conditions? And then you think, well, how do you reverse that shift? If anything, there's pressures on us to pressures on us to become even more invisible with the advent of remote well, the advent of reliable video remote interpreting. Um, studies in sign language interpreting have shown that the interpreters who work remotely tend to feel undervalued, underpaid, invisible. And you think, well, you either say, you know, sorry, we've got to deal with that, or you say, well, what do we do next? Have, has there been any research on what happened when feminized professions have gone? Well, hold on a minute, that's enough. We, we've noticed these trends and we're going to try and stop them. Um, to be honest, I don't really know. I only have a bunch of examples where I think, um, for example, in nursing or in education, which are very um, feminized professions, where it is a really bad situation that not more men go into the profession. Yeah, Because um, on the one hand, I mean, in education, I'd say uh, little boys also need male role models yeah, to look up to. In nursing, you also need to have men for a number of reasons, but also just for patients who might feel more comfortable. But that's just one reason. Um, but then also, be, if those professions, they're not paid well, they're not respected well. So, of course, why would men usually go into those professions? And so this is a bad situation. Um, and if we could for example, raise the prestige of those professions, um, pay those people better who deserve that pay anyway, and then hopefully get more men in. Um, you know, you could hopefully change not just the status, but just the situation overall. Now, in interpreting, to be honest, I'm not really sure because I don't want to say, oh, we need men to combat this or there's no way out, you know. But um, at the same time, I think gender balance is advisable in any profession for a number of reasons. Um, what, uh, what participants have pointed out to me was that they feel like the real imbalance is more in the power structure. They feel like there's more heads of booth that are male um, that maybe on panels as well. They said like in the last years, things have started to change, but that for a while some would go to conferences um, and the whole panel would all be men and the whole room would all be women. <laughs> And that's just yeah. she said that's just to ridiculous. The you know? podcast. She, she, she says <laughs> yeah. to the mental podcast. <laughs> totally a mental, a mental cast, yeah. But um, Jonathan, do I remember correctly? You just recently wrote something about uh, conference 
conferences and and women on interpreting conferences? So basically, it was in response to my my one of my big sisters is a, an experimental nuclear physicist. So wow. when I saw the blatant foul, he mis- casually mentions casually, casually <laughs> mentions yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, and here we thought Jonathan was a smart cookie in the Downey family. <laughs> So when I saw the blatant feral misogyny directed against, uh, I believe her name is Dr. Katie Bauman or Bruman over the whole black yeah. hole discovery, I was, yeah. on the one hand, I'd never seen it before. So in interpreting studies, the vast majority of our researchers are female. If you go to conferences, you're likely to get at least the majority of plenary speakers being female, um, the head of skeeks female. You know, I'm used to being in an environment where roughly gender balanced and even in terms of prestige I don't know so much about heads of booths come a freelancer but you know I've had most of the conferences that I've done in my entire career I've been the only male interpreter there um I'm used and you know you go to translation interpreting conferences the audience is usually slightly more female than the male on stage you know if you go to bp conference or tlc well not as much tlc but bp conference and many of the others the majority of the speakers are female as well Uh, and so i'd never come across the depths of misogyny that was directed at her and i was like well this is so unusual because as far as i'm aware now i could be wrong and sarah please correct me if i'm wrong i don't think that kind of meanness really exists in interpreting possibly because it's majority female and so you know any misogynistic man in interpreting would be out on his backside within a couple of hours quite rightly so well, uh, well not if he's the one in power um, but, <laughs> yeah. no, but I mean not to say that there aren't any misogynists yeah. you know. um, I don't know to be honest because um, well first of all you said that the majority of researchers in the field are female as far as I'm aware in interpreting studies can you name any? what in interpreting studies? yeah a female one that's well known there's Jemina Napier there is uh, Denise Denise Seleskovich, you know, one of the, and Marianne Lederer, you know, the people of, of interpreting studies. Uh, Sylvia Kalina. Sylvia Kalina. Okay, okay, cool. Uh, that's good because, um, no, uh, some of the women have also said that, like, the big names in interpreting, that they're still male as well. Well, yeah. there's certainly one big male name in interpreting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you also get people like, sadly, uh, Denitza and Miriam Schlesinger who have passed away. But I would say when when you look at, you know, who's made the mark on interpreting studies theory, you have to name, you know, Miriam Schlesinger, Marianne Lederer, Denita Seleskovich. And I was at a prize giving last year in Paris. And, you know, I had previous presidents of IEC and it was roughly gender balanced. And, you know, you had, you could see almost by age how things have changed over time. And certainly the, the kind of, uh, the, the people who I, I would expect to see quoted, there's at least as many females as males. I mean, you, you do have prominent men like Francois Hacker, Daniel Gilles, uh, yeah, Killian Yeah, I was going to say, those are the two really big names. No? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but but then, you know, I, I when I did my master's, I was desperate to meet Miriam Schlesinger and just, just sadly never got the chance. I did get to meet uh, Marianne Lederer and was absolutely in awe of, awesome. of, of her contribution to the field. <laughs> And Christiana Nord, who's really a translation studies person, but we'll let her off. Well, it's, it's not to say that, that, you know, that women aren't out there uh, or that times aren't changing. But um, also, for example, the, the conference that I spoke at uh, last year in Paris at the ESET campus, Discuss Interpreting, um, 
there were loads of female speakers, um, but the three keynote speakers were men. <laughs> and it was even pointed out at the conference. And I'm sure they didn't do this on purpose and maybe they weren't aware of it until it happened. But it was almost, again, like, okay, these are the the normal researchers. And I was so happy to be included in that because it was just my master's thesis as well, you know. But And then it was like, and the three <laughs> kings of the show... <laughs> Or men again yeah you know it's like okay 80 percent women and then there's the you know the top um a lot of them have pointed out like they're few in numbers but aren't they mighty you know <laughs> I, mean, I would actually say so like my, my current re- interpreting research here is more from beating every derek are they're pretty much all female <laughs> um but i, I it is kind of a weird one because I'm going to the ITI conference by the time this comes out, and they they gradually released the list. Of, and I'm quite happy talking about this because it's a public discussion. They gradually released the the list of featured speakers, and just because of the order in which people confirmed, the first kind of bunch of speakers they confirmed were all male. And suddenly mm-hmm. there was this rush to see why have you got a man? And you know, our, our conference chair said, "Hold on a minute." We actually have roughly equal. It's just that the men happened to confirm first on this occasion, not seeing it, you know. And I was like, mm. okay, I, I get the concern for gender balance, and I agree with it. And I would say in interpreting studies, your plenary speaker should probably be at least 50 50, if not 70 20, 70 30 female to male. But yeah, it, it's, it's a, yeah, <laughs> it could be tricky. No, I agree that, you know, you shouldn't also, we also shouldn't overreact, you know, we shouldn't uh, immediately assume uh, some kind of malintent here, you know. Um, or male intent. Oh, male intent, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. See what you did there, Jonathan. Um, See? No, I agree. But I do think um, we also, there are certain things that come with it um, because we're all influenced by the society around us, whether we want to or not. No, I don't think of myself as being um, biased when it comes to gender, but of course I am in a way. I'd be an idiot to claim that I'm not, you know. We're all uh, biased in one way or another. And even when we don't mean to, um, this can really influence um, a profession and the conditions in that profession. And that's why I think it should be taken seriously. And I was glad to hear that people said that things are changing that, for example, women also go into higher positions or maybe it's even enough to raise awareness around this this issue. You know, when people say stuff like, oh, it's such a service profession or it was suggested that it has a nurturing element and that's why it's appealing to women. Um, I don't really agree uh, with that. Um, yeah. Then I just wonder, well, what was it like for the men who started, more or less started this profession? You know, where they all... They all went to nursing. Nurturing? Yeah, did they all go to nursing school, you know? <laughs> They were all really great at serving people, you know, and <laughs> it's just mm. how is it that we're associating these attributes with the profession now when back then it was done by men as well, you know, and it was comments like, oh, women can multitask better. I know that's a common cliche. Maybe we can. I'm a good multitasker, but I'm sure you guys are too, because, you know, you're also interpreters. <laughs> so um, I don't think... Um, those are good arguments. It's probably more the other way around that now there are women, people are trying to find these explanations. But then again, it was done by men before. So it's still being done by men. <laughs> I think we have quite a few interpreting students or aspiring interpreters listening to the podcast. So I'm wondering if you could explain just a little bit how you um, 
Um, well, I think you've told us a little bit about why the topic was interesting to you, but maybe tell us a little bit about how you approached the whole thesis. I mean, you don't have to go into too much detail, but just what's, <laughs> what's the approach? Because I think that that could be interesting. Uh, and it's interesting to me because I'm not really an academic. So I, I'd be interested in, in your approach and, and how you went about writing the thesis and doing the research. Okay. Um, well, first I put on my thinking cap and thought, um, what interests me and what do I see around me? And then I was lucky enough to find um, Rachel's um, study. And it just really opened the topic up for me. Um, and then when I obviously had to look into the female side a lot more. So I could not find anything related to women and work that did not immediately suggest stuff about um, family and um, gender imbalance. That was like something I wanted to know what motivates women in general, you know, to go to work. <laughs> what is there? What do women like about work? And it was just impossible to find. Everything was just related to um, just like... Um, being suppressed and you know that side of things or women and family how do they make it work also not one study that asked that about men by the way yeah. <laughs> how do men make it work but um yeah but then I, I took a lot from that you know it was telling in itself and then um I found I, I just researched more into that field what was associated commonly with um um work and women um, how else did I go about um, just research in general about the development in conference interpreting, where it started out and what route it took. Um, found a little bit about the topic uh, directly, but very, very little. And then tried to mash it all together uh, into something coherent and published a survey um, because I wanted to just gather data on it. I didn't want to just... Um, uh, I wanted it to be solid and I got 161 valid responses to my survey wow. around the world. So I think that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so are we talking kind of multi-choice or free text responses or kind of Likert scales or? Yeah, a lot of the um, Likert scale, um, but not only. So I took some from Rachel's research because I wanted to see, um, do women have the same motivations? How do they feel about those? And also, how do women feel about what men suggested, what um, draws women to the profession? Yeah, actually, one thing I found really interesting, if you don't mind, um, men said that they think the flexible element attracts women because it allows them to combine work and family. And women completely disagreed with that side <laughs> because they're like, um, the volatility of income and the constant travel actually makes it really difficult to combine work and family in this profession. <laughs> so, uh, no. And also, I thought it was uh, interesting that they said, or the flexible element is probably not encouraging for men um, when it comes to their profession because they want it to be stable and also it's not encouraging for men uh, in combination with family, but for women, like men assume the opposite, if that makes sense. Yes? Mm, yeah, so yeah. I thought that was quite mm. interesting. Um, that Again, we're looking at the same factor and people assume different things with the different genders for the same profession. Um, yeah, anyway, so I did the survey, got a lot of great responses, and at the end I had a little comment field, and I got so many comments, which was amazing, and so much work. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> free text comments, yay! <laughs> um, and then I followed up the survey with um, three, no, four interviews. Yeah, um, with female conference interpreters because I also wanted to delve a little bit more beneath uh, the surface and get some more personal stories. The questions were around the same: what motivates you to become a conference interpreter, and why do you think we have this gender imbalance? What contributed to it? Um, but I got so much more out of the interviews as well. Like the, the survey was great to have some, some data and really be able to go, okay, so and so many percent feel that way. And they come from around the world. So there's definitely something to it. And then the interviews offered so much more insights. Um, I like doing it that way anyway, I think to just have some data you can refer to, but then also get some personal stories because they're important, I think. I think this is actually a traditional thing. It's becoming traditional in interpreting studies that we, we like our surveys with numbers. <laughs> yeah. I'm a survey methods geek. <laughs> uh, we, we like our surveys with numbers and we like bar charts. And then we go, oh, hold on a minute, but what does that mean? And then that is kind of a very typical interpreting studies method of, hold on a minute. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> it, but, but it's interesting because, you know, 176, I think you said that's, kind of on par with some of the biggest surveys that have really ever been done in interpreting studies says something about it. It was 161, but 161 it was close. Um, and Rachel got even more. I think she got more than 200. So yeah. If she got more than 200, she basically got all of the male conference interpreters. All of them, yes. They get very <laughs> excited. <laughs> all, all of them and all of their sons filling it in being. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was actually funny when I sent my survey out first. I got a few responses back from men saying, "Like, but what about men? What about our opinions?" And I was like, "We asked you first, so <laughs> now it's women's turn." <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> I, I recognize certain traits. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and this is the other thing: is is did you put it on Facebook or did you email it to people or? Oh, I, yeah, I emailed it. I reached out to the um, IEC representatives. Proper solid data gathering. Yep. Um, I, you know, I think I also published it on my professional Facebook profile. Yeah. I was going to say, because I think the Alexis have heard my rant about surveys being put on random Facebook groups. I knew I could uh, pique your interest. There. <laughs> I'm not going to redo the rant. It's probably got edited out of another episode. Just don't. I think the <laughs> full going. rant made it into the episode. So I'm glad that, Sarah, you're sticking to your guns. And I think you're actually winning over Jonathan. <laughs> I'm, I'm a sucker for good solid research. Well, you know, I didn't fully, because it would have been so much work to also include this particular level of detail in my thesis. But I did put it um, in the survey that people could choose their age group, you know, like 25 to 35, that kind of, because I wanted to see, am I just attracting uh, the same age group and are they all saying the same thing? But I was glad to see that people from all age groups took part in the survey and that there wasn't a lot of variation, which could have happened, you know, I thought, okay, maybe only the older generation feels that way because they've been more exposed to misogyny and the new ones are like, you know, we're over this, which is of course <laughs> not no, true if we are following the recent time, you know, the, the current times, but um, just hypothetically, I mean, that could have happened, but it didn't. And I included um, that people could indicate their nationality as well. Um, and that, okay, there was a lot, of course, from 
Europe and the United States, but I got people from all around the globe, which I thought was pretty cool as well. That is really good. That is that cool. proper yeah. hardcore research, says. Yeah, I agree with you that it, it's not easy to do a good survey. And I piloted mine as well with my uh, classmates just to make sure I didn't um, include any leading questions because, I mean, you can never fully exclude research or bias. Um, but I wanted to try to limit it as much as possible and just go fairly. There were so many leading questions in surveys. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I had the embarrassment of um, my... PhD examiners were Franz Perhacker and Jemaine Napier. And I had the embarrassment of presenting them. So I did the survey, interviews, and um, participant observation. And I had the embarrassment of presenting them the results of my surveys, which the main result was all the questions that we traditionally ask clients about what they expect from interpreters, they don't work. And I could show you the stats to prove that they don't work. And I was like, this is really embarrassing. <laughs> you know, the outcome of my survey was, oops. But, you know, it was an interesting oops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so Sarah, when you when you crunched like all the data and, and and wrote your research, were you kind of happy to be done with it, or could you have gone on for a lot longer with it? Um, if I had more time, I would have been able to enjoy it more. Let's say. Um, but you know, time is always yeah, up. Yeah, like a hard deadline. Yeah, I mean, no one has time, right? Yeah, um, sure. But yeah, I was so glad to be done just because by the end of it, it, it was just so much work, <laughs> so much work, but I did enjoy it. And yeah, if you're looking for advice for students, this is the main advice I would give is pick a topic that interests you because it is going to be hard. It's going to be really long. And you're going to hate it if you don't pick something that interests you. Because <laughs> mm. especially with this really, really thesis type of research, which, which is, again, a bit different. You have to be so particular about so many things. Or I mean, you don't have to, but I wanted to do it properly. And so I tried to, you know, really dig deep and do it properly with the, the style of writing as well. And, for example, I coded all my interviews um, you know, so you go through it line by line and or paragraph by paragraph and you summarize the topic to, again, try to eliminate researcher bias. And then you group those themes further down, down, down so that you're, you know, trying to prove that those topics that you're taking from the interviews actually exist. Again, of course, it's always influenced by me analyzing this, but it's supposed to reduce that. And this is a lot of work. I did that for the comments and I had pages of comments. And for the interviews, um, yeah, but it was good. So were you, were you using preset themes or doing a kind of grounded theory? I know nothing style of analysis. I was going to say this sounds very nerdy, but Jonathan is a really happy Yeah, no, <laughs> so happy. So with the explanation, which will be cut, there are two ways of coding interviews. You either say these are the themes I'm looking for and you go code for them and then reanalyze them. So how is this different from just transcribing? Just so you, you transcribe your interview. Oh, yeah, you transcribe first. <laughs> I did that then, too. <laughs> then if you're a proper researcher, you have expensive software. I just used the highlight feature in Microsoft Word and made my own like coded highlight colors and text colors. And okay. you can either say, okay, this is what I'm looking at. I'm looking at these themes. I want to identify these themes. And you pull them out of all the interviews and chuck them in a big file and then reanalyze them or there's another style where you pretend that you know nothing and you just try to build up your coding from zero to whatever it comes to in reality real life is messy and you tend to do a mash of both so you will start with preset themes and you'll go oh but that's interesting i'll keep that 
Um, and so I don't know, did, did you start and say, I'm just looking for these themes or did, did you fall into the whole grounded theory? I know nothing way of doing research. Yeah, I tried to do the going in blind approach. Yeah. That's, that is proper hardcore. Let me guess, that's the more difficult one. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, for a while, it was just my desk was covered in paper and you know, notes everywhere, oh color coding systems. And Thick books by Glasser and Strauss sitting on your desk going, I have no idea what they mean either. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I tried to read, so the kind of grounded theory textbook, I guess, is by Glasser and Strauss. And someone emailed me if you can get past the first chapter without going, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> nice. Yeah, they're confusing me. So, so what happens once once you're done with, well, basically your your studies? I guess is there one of these nice ceremonies where you throw your hat up in the air, stuff like that, and go away? Yeah, sort of. We had a lovely ceremony in um, November. So a good bit later, we submitted the thesis um, at the end of August, I think it was, and then you know they get a bit of time to correct it. And then we had the ceremony in November and it was really nice because I didn't attend my ceremony in Bochum because I literally handed in my thesis and a week later I was in my car and, yeah, and drove off to Ireland without a plan. Really smart. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> I like it. And, um, so this time I got to do the whole ceremony and we had to rent um, robes and it was in the nice building um, in Galway that looks kind of like it's from Harry Potter. And um, so we really looked like students from Harry Potter, I thought. Um, yeah, and the whole <laughs> thing was we web stream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not used to this. It was 300 or no, not 300. Um, way, like loads of people in a room and you get like your four seconds of glory on the stage where they call you up and you the get handshake. to shake the hand, yeah, wave, yeah. and then you're out and then you sit there for another two hours and clap. Mm. Um, but it was lovely anyway. Our whole class was there. They all came back. Everyone already went back to their home countries or most of them, but everyone came back and Susan was there, our teacher, and a few of the other teachers and we all had a drink together. And it was really nice. <laughs> that is awesome. Sounds good. Hey, everyone gets confused because in the UK you get hit on the head and other people are like, Why'd you get hit on the head? So what do you mean? So so they have like a cap and they hit you on the head with a cap. Oh. They didn't hit us. No, we weren't hit. Oh, I, I've been hit on the head twice. Now. The Irish are nice. Maybe that's you, John. <laughs> <laughs> they did it to everyone. <laughs> okay, well, fair enough then. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. It must, it must be an, it must must be a Scottish English thing. <laughs> But oh anyway, so goodness. you mentioned in passing before we got you into the depths of research about working for NIMSI. So who are NIMSI and what kind of research do they do that interpreters might be interested in? Um, at NIMSI, we do market research for the whole language service industry. So anything to do with language services is what we cover. We analyze the current trends or um, advise our clients um, what area is it worth investing in um, and It can be technology on any level, it can be translation, it can be subtitling and dubbing, um, and then, of course, my area, interpreting. <laughs> and we do, oh yeah, we do consulting. I feel like this kind of goes hand in hand with um, Florian from last episode from Slater.com, because this sounds kind of like the data that they would also be kind of interested in, potentially. Yeah, um, that would definitely go in a similar direction. And that's to say, on the market, there's only really one other company that does Uh, what NIMSI does, theoretically, but they do it a little bit more 
um, like we do it more approachable. Yeah, Nimzi, it's all about <laughs> we we get you the proper research, but put it in a format that you actually want to read and that is easily accessible. Yeah. Um, because, you know, no one has time. People get bored. Um, we all access uh, totally. information online and we want it now and we don't want to wait around long or dig through 10 pages of just, I don't know, more or less raw data. You want someone else to do the work for you and, you know, you want to be having fun reading it, but it being solid data. So do you include, because there is one of your competitors who we probably shouldn't name so that we don't get sued, <laughs> um, one of your competitors I have had... I, I wrote an article in a professional magazine pointing out that from my point of view as a researcher, a flaw in their methodology is that they routinely ignore freelancers. They actually point out in their reports that they ignore any uh, entities below a certain threshold in terms of employee numbers and in terms of turnover, which is understandable given who's paying for their work. But it would be interesting, do NIMSI say, do NIMSI have roughly the same views in terms of the data you're interested in? Or do you go out and look at the trends that freelancers are seeing as well? Yeah, um, NIMSI, and this is something that attracted me to NIMSI, is that they, or we, <laughs> no, um, look at the market from all angles. You know, it's not just the buyer side or the LSP side or the freelancer or the, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's supposed to be research for all angles and to cover the entire market. Like you said, you know, we wouldn't leave out the freelance perspective, and especially in interpreting. I don't understand how you could because most <laughs> interpreters are freelancers. <laughs> <laughs> right? Mm. <laughs> I, I'm behaving myself in the corner here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe you can, but I wouldn't because yeah. um, why would you leave out the largest group? Yeah. <laughs> Fair <laughs> question, absolutely. Yeah. But but if I'm if I'm correct, uh, Nimsy is still a, a fairly well not new, but they haven't been around for that long, right? And it's um, it was founded by Renato Beninato, is that right? Yeah, it's uh, Renato Beninato and Tucker Johnson. They're the co-founders of NIMSI. Ah, right. And Renato, of course, is is a very well-known podcaster as well. So he has, um, what's it called, Globally Speaking. So um, if if you ever run out of Troublesome Terps episodes and you, you want to listen to other interesting stuff, I recommend <laughs> listening to, uh, to Totally, no, Globally Speaking. Totally Speaking. <laughs> totally Globally <laughs> and, Speaking. And Renato, if you're listening to this episode since one of your members of staff is on, we could do with a call-up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're completely mercenary at this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Alex, um, I mean, either one, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but uh, you are right that um, NIMSI is only about a year and a half old, but has steadily grown since and has been really successful and keeps moving forward. So, mm -hmm. yeah. so and, and how does it work for you? Do, you? do you get to pick your own like research topics or is, is it more a collaborative approach? What what is that like? Well, it's a bit of both, I guess. Um, the way it works is um, I'm, of course, ex as a researcher and writer on the team, I'm expected to also present research topics. And so I did that just recently, um, came up with a list of topics that I would like to research. And then it was run past the bosses and more or less all of it was uh, approved. And now I have about a year's work <laughs> ahead of myself to get through it. Wow. <laughs> Well, step by step, you know, it's all um, I, what I really, really love about NIMSI. It's because it's probably still younger um, and smaller 
or just because it's the people they hire. It's a really nice atmosphere. It's really collaborative. Of course, there's um, Renato and Tucker on the top, but um, we all get together once a week to discuss our ideas or what we've been up to. And you can approach anyone anytime and they want your input as well. You know, of course, I'm they, they are my superiors, but um, they want to hear from me as well. So it's not like a top-down approach. Uh, it's quite the opposite. They, they want to push us as well to get out there and do the work and develop and you know, be challenged and produce some good work. That, that's really encouraging because I'm just ending by the time this podcast goes live I will have ended my six year stint on the ITI board and one of the things that we've been really happy to deliver while I've been on the board is our research network events so ITI is deliberately trying to bring together researchers in interpreting from especially the UK but from all over the world to try and build more of a collection of really practical hands-on research and to see NIMSI kind of take the freelancer perspective seriously and to that they've got a serious researcher on the team actually is really encouraging for us because it means that we're not the only people kind of shouting about practical research. We know there are other associations doing it, but to have a company saying this is what we want to be doing is incredibly encouraging, incredibly forward-looking, um, and it gives me hope. I'm writing a book on the future of the profession at the moment, and it gets it gives me hope that, you know, if this is what's happening, we don't just have to listen to the loud voices that are talking about this technology or that one. Sorry, Alex. But, you know, we can start to build our <laughs> own knowledge as well. I mean, technology is good in its place, but we can start to build our own knowledge base that's not necessarily controlled by organizations that have their own inherent biases, whether we like it or not. Well, I was actually just recently um, at Gala. Um, do you know the conference um so in munich yes i was sent there my first month at nimsy already so they seem to have a lot of confidence in me um <laughs> so i was sent to gala and it was fantastic they had a special interpreting section as well so i met, went to most of those sessions of course and one thing i really loved was that even though there was so much talk about ai and technology in all aspects of the industry but also in interpreting uh, that everyone highlighted the human component. So I don't feel like it needs to be um, a thing of either human or technology, but it's just going to be, well, we need to adapt with the technology because it's just, it's here and we'd be stupid not to. Technology is not going anywhere. <laughs> if history has taught us anything, it's always moving forward. But the one thing, there are certain elements uh, that cannot be replaced by technology or at least not in the near future, maybe never. And there's just certain human judgment, nuances, empathy. Um, I forgot the whole list, but it was highlighted in so many talks and I feel like I couldn't agree more. So if anything, the interpreting market keeps growing. It's such a big field. And uh, we at NIMSI also agree that it's been, uh, that it is an area that has been um, not fully ignored, but not been giving as much attention. And we would like to change that because it's an important area and it is growing. So, you know, there's enough and reason to. And it's very difficult to get market size estimates when, I mean, I was chatting to Dr. Henry Liu, who used to be the president of FEET. And his conclusion is the same as mine, which is the, 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 gr the biggest growing client sectors for interpreting are the people who don't yet know that we exist. 
And so, you know, in tran- it's difficult to get an estimate of how big the market will be in, say, five years' time, when the likelihood is that a new big chunk of the market will be people who right now can't even spell the word interpreter. <laughs> and it's like, you know, how do you do market growth survey, especially with, I don't know if Nimsy's spotted this, but I've noticed a, a change in the way interpreters talk about their own work and the ways that we market, especially outside of the big kind of Munich, Paris, Brussels nexus. Um, in smaller markets like parts of the UK and Scotland, we're now going, well, actually, if we want work, we need to go and find it. And if we're going to go and find it, then the easiest clients to win are those that no one else is currently working with. So that I'm I'm seeing more interpreters wanting to go out and do really proactive marketing. And that could change the game if, if that becomes a wider industry trend and we start seeing a whole new set of clients coming into the industry that weren't there before. Yeah, and um, we also think that there are a whole lot of um, industries that are kind of untapped when it comes to interpreting. You know, there are some that are um, well-known, well-established, uh, but we're actually, this is going to be one of the series I'll be doing for NIMSI as to look into where can we grow the interpreting market and what industries is there potential where would um, would people who offer any sort of service benefit from having interpreters as well. I can pass you some interesting data points on that already. Yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) So Sarah, um, for interpreters who would be interested in in learning more about NIMSI or reading some of the work, can can people just go to the website? I mean, is some of the research freely available or is is it mostly like big reports that you have to pay for? No, um, we do both. So if you just go to the website, so it's www.nimsi.com. Um, then you can go to research and choose interpreting. And then there um, we do articles and we do insights reports. And all of our articles are available to anyone. And it's only the insights reports um, that for which you need a subscription. Yeah. Um, but we also do info drops. I don't know if you guys have ever seen them before. I mean, these are just small bits, but um, we do these little videos, um, useful information in two minutes or less. We just drop some knowledge. Okay. (laughs) Drop some knowledge. (laughs) Don't don't say that. I've been editing down a 28-minute video to five minutes all day today. (laughs) (laughs) Which is fun, Which are dropping later this evening. (laughs) Yeah. And I see that there is a report about the gala conference Mm. on here. So if people want to read that. I keep wanting to go to gala, but it's so expensive. Yeah, I got got lucky about that. Couch to crash on. (laughs) Although, Although, to be fair... You know, I'm not getting to go to Gala, but I'm getting to go to South Africa this year. Yeah, well, mm, cool. yeah. <laughs> you pick your battles, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. My, my rule is if someone else is paying, I'm going. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, do you still find time to interpret and translate on, on the side? I was always going to say. Or? Uh, well, actually, I've only been with NIMSI now since uh, March. So it's all very new. And the first month was very exciting because I went on two business trips and now I'm just trying to find the ropes. But yeah, actually, uh, this is, again, something I really loved about the company or still do, is that they encourage me as well to go out and interpret because uh, they don't want someone who just looks at the market from the outside, but they want an insider, someone who really works on the market, knows the trends, knows the challenges. So yeah, I'm still... Um, available for interpreting work whenever it comes up and I just run it past them and then I can go and take the job. It's no problem. That's awesome. That's like a win-win situation right there. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, for translation, I mean, theoretically, it would be the same story. But I only just recently finished uh, the translation of a novel and it was months <laughs> and it was uh, great. I did it uh, alongside my former job. And so I did not sleep for about four months, I'd say. Uh, it was really tough. Who needs sleep anyway? So for the feeling. moment, I'm happy to take a small breather from translation. <laughs> and yeah, I would sounds prefer, like a yeah, to focus on interpreting for the moment. But I would also always be open to translation work again. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm amazed at anyone who can translate a novel because that's like time hardcore. It, it's almost like a PhD. Eh? Oh, <laughs> like, any time I've I've done a translation more than about eight thousand words, by the the end of it, I've been like, okay, I'm looking forward to getting paid now. You know, like ten thousand <laughs> words is the maximum before I start feeling crazy. <laughs> yeah. Whereas if, if someone said, "Can you write a seventy thousand word book?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> Did you at least like the book, Sarah? Or was it, <laughs> did you like the book? Yeah. Well, you know, because I guess that helps. Right? Well, it's, a, it's a fair question. No, I really did. Uh, it was by, it was the debut novel of an Irish author, Keelan Hughes. And the book is called Orchid and the Wasp. And it's an amazing book. Uh, she's such an amazing writer, which made it really hard to translate, actually. So for my work, this wasn't great in the sense that... Uh, she just played around with the words so much and there was so much Irish uh, cultural references in there. Um, wow, yeah. But it was so, so good that it didn't matter. I loved it. So. That's awesome. That's really, really good. That, that is incredible. And would you ever consider doing a PhD? I've been asked that question before, yeah. And... Um, <laughs> By your parents, by, by Susan? No, actually not by my no. parents, no. <laughs> I don't think they want me to go back to making no money, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is fair. Which is there fair. is such a thing as a part-time PhD where you make some money. I love Well, actually, I have to say, before I did my master's in conference interpreting, I had started a PhD, um, but then there was no funding for it. And then I also went, okay, I don't think I want to continue this for four years, not get paid, and then get no better job prospects afterwards. So I went ahead and did conference interpreting, which I'd always wanted to do. And funny enough, I'm back in research now, but in a completely different side, and I do get paid, so it's a lot better. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, I would never say no, because I can see, I know a lot of people who did their PhDs, um, but at the moment, I mean, I wouldn't consider it necessary for me right now. Mm. Never say no, though, I guess. Mm. <laughs> so do you know when the when the novel will be published in German? I think um, that might be in autumn. I'm not 100% sure. It's by uh, Steidl Verlag. Yeah. Um, and I know that, so I was a co-translator. So I did the whole book and then... The other translator that I work with um, did the whole book as well. He's the more experienced translator, so he polished it up nicely afterwards. Yeah. And I think, as far as I'm aware, it's currently with the proofreader and editor. Um, so I think there are a few more steps before it's on the market, but it's coming out this year anyway. But it's pretty nice because it's it's the publishing house of Günter Grass, isn't it? Steidel, I think. Uh, you know more than me. So good, good company, you're in. <laughs> But we should probably have you have you on again uh, on the podcast to talk about. I mean, translation is really not our field, but it would be interesting to talk to talk about the translation process. Yeah, when you win the Booker Prize, it will be a bit harder to get you on, but I'm sure we'll. <laughs> yeah. I'll always be available for you guys. <laughs> oh, and on this happy note, <laughs> I won't forget about you when I'm famous. <laughs>
that's what they all say. That's what they all say. <laughs> So I actually had the pleasure of meeting the author um, whose book I translated just last week um, at the literature yeah. festival here in Galway. Um, and first of all, yeah, she also said in one of her talks that writers, most writers more or less make minimum wage. Um, but yeah, and then I got to meet her afterwards, which was amazing. And to my surprise, she was just as excited to meet me as I was <laughs> uh, to meet her yeah. because she'd never met her translators before. Um, yeah, so it's really cool. Um, she suggests that maybe we do something together in uh, when the German book is out because she's actually from Galway. Yeah, because what Keelan told me as well, she said that translators are the best readers because they read your book so in depth and question things and like, how did she mean this and how do I convey this? Because you know, it's like, yeah. I'm gonna chill out on the couch. Get out, I'm leaving. <laughs>